The wild is calling. Answer your thirst for adventure with Grain Belt Premium Beer. Bring the Grain Belt to the outdoors with their limited edition premium hunting season pack. It's available anywhere you can find premium 12-pack cans of Grain Belt. Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter. Joined as always by the bacon to my eggs, Brandon. <laughs> Wait a second. What are you what are you saying when you're calling me bacon? What's that supposed I'm to be? I'm saying you're not kosher. You're not <laughs> and I'm pretty kosher. expensive at the moment, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know what? Actually, our house smells like bacon at the moment. Really? Because uh yeah, I'm going to a uh, I'm going to a housewarming party for my little bro, and I am bringing uh, duck jalapeno poppers. Ah, okay. I've heard of I've heard of these duck jalapeno poppers before. Yeah, so I got some jalapenos in my garden. Cut them up, put a little cream cheese, scoop of cream cheese in there, then a piece of duck, and wrap it in bacon with a toothpick, you know, sticking through it, and then throw them in the oven. And oh my gosh. It's just a great way to eat duck. It sounds amazing. Of, yeah, duck's tough for a lot of people, you know. Yeah, duck's you got it. Tough, but. Well, that that definitely makes it easy for anyone to eat. Uh yeah, the uh, I it's kind of a cheater's way to cook duck because duck is so so good, but I do have like I have one pack of duck left and I have a thing we've talked about this before, Brandon, where I try to eat all the I eat all the wild game before I shoot that wild game again the next season and i didn't quite make it i had one pack of oregon duck left from last season and i shot my first two ducks of the year with a guy named ken yang on thursday morning we went out and hunted uh ducks near glencoe minnesota just for a couple hours and we shot some teal which was fun really cool so yeah so i was like i need to thaw those old ducks Use them up, so we're having them for appetizers and then some for dinner, and then uh, we start eating the new duck. And those teal, I I I um I plucked them and gutted them, and they look just perfect. They're a real quick roast, a, l- a little teal, man. It's not much food, but whew, it tastes good. I'm jealous. I haven't gotten to haven't got to try teal yet, or really much duck. I think I've eaten duck maybe once in my life. Well, maybe I'll get you some of this duck. Hmm, interesting. Go. Okay, you know I have been in touch with Scott France and our last guest. Um, I'm ta- he said he wanted. I I'm taking you out pheasant hunting again this year. Um, I guarantee it. But you know he's he said he wanted to go as well. So. I actually emailed him with some dates. I think he's probably going to be a harder guy to pin down than you. Yeah, probably. And then he said he wants to get Travis to go too. So you'd be, man, you'd be out like pheasant hunting with a couple stars of a pheasant hunting television show. Yeah, that's that's no, not no pressure. Yeah, that's not intimidating at all. That that's fine. Great. <laughs> no pressure. That would be fun. Yeah, we got to do it. I took a guy out on Friday. We went to a game farm. Uh, he reached out to me and said, I'd really like to learn how to hunt and I've never done anything like it before. I, I don't really, I've never even really shot a long gun. He had shot a pistol, but never a rifle or a shotgun. So we went to a game farm and I took him, uh, we did the sporting clays course, which means you each shoot about, you know, 25, 26 shots. We shot a few extras. Um, and then he was pretty darn good. He actually, you know, he probably shot almost half the clays on his first time ever shooting a shotgun. And then we put six birds out in a field, uh, and we came back with seven. We even wow. found a scratch bird. It's called. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, and plus we missed a couple. So he was hooked. And the next day he said, I'm, I think I got the bug. I'm going to go buy a shotgun. Wow. Jeez. So, Took that step yeah. right away. So I'm telling you, man, maybe if I would have given you a little better experience last year when I took you out pheasant hunting, where I think we saw one pheasant run across the road. Was yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was I was still actually super amped about it. It was still a really good experience for me. Yeah. And I, I did, I will admittedly uh, admit this, that I did look up online how much certain things costed, but 
but I still have no idea what I'm looking for either. So. Yeah, well, you've got some real. I mean, if you if that's something you wanted to get into, man, you've got some great connections. So we'll get you out there with those guys from the Flush TV show and podcast. And who knows, free gear might just start flowing your way. <laughs> that, so. I mean, that would be a that'd be a perk for sure. Yeah. Uh, hey, before I introduce our guest today, I just want to once again give a thanks to Grain Bell Premium Beer and their limited edition hunting camo pack for sponsoring the Reverend Hunter podcast. Uh, we love having sponsors. If you or your organization or company wants to sponsor us, drop us a line. Brandon and I, uh, we'd, we'd be thrilled to welcome you uh, a, as a sponsor of the Reverend Hunter. So thanks to Grain Bell Premium. Uh, hey, my guest today is Sanjay Rawal, who is um, the director, the filmmaker, the brains behind a movie called Gather, which I learned about from a friend of mine who ran a film festival, which uh, was online due to the pandemic. It's called the Food and Film Festival. And I said, I would love to talk to somebody who did, you know, one of your, are there any films that, that kind of, I don't know, dovetail with the kind of stuff I like to talk about in this show on, on the Reverend Hunter. And he immediately said, you got to talk to Sanjay at, uh, about this film gather. And so I watched the film, um, and you can all watch it starting November 1st. It's on Netflix. You can already watch it on Amazon prime. Um, you know, you can pay to watch it on Amazon prime. I don't know. It's four ninety nine or two ninety nine or something. It's not much, or you can wait and it'll be during, um, uh, Indigenous Persons Month in November, it will be on Netflix, which I'm guessing almost everybody has Netflix. I would really encourage you to watch this film. It's a, it's an hour and 15 minutes, and Sanjay directs it. It's about indigenous persons in North America returning to their traditional food ways and working toward food sovereignty. So there's a lot of history in there about how Native Americans were robbed of their food sovereignty as Europeans, you know, moved west across the continent, you might say invaded the continent and pushed the people who were already here into very undesirable parcels of land, which most of us know as reservations or in Canada, they're called reserves. Uh, as most everybody, I hope, would know by now, those reservations are... Uh, the, you know, really some of the least desirable places in the country, not places you can farm, not even really places you can ranch. Um, Sanjay and I talk about, you know, one that I lived on uh, a reservation, which is just dry, dusty dirt. You know, it's just, it, it's, it's a desert basically. Um, and a lot of the stuff he deals with in the film is the very stuff I saw when I lived on the reservation that, you know, most of the food, is junk food, processed food. It, the, the, there's a kid in the film, a native kid who calls it gas station food. It's what they eat because it's, it's all they can eat. You know, they're in very remote places. They're away from significant trucking lines. They get government commodity food and they get gas station food. Um, there's anybody who follows, uh, Indian country news at all knows there's a, an epidemic of diabetes. There's an e epidemic of alcoholism and all sorts of uh, health issues that are related to those two. So it's a hope. Here's what, here's what I'd say though. And I, I, I think people will get this by the end of our interview. It's a hopeful film. Sanjay's a hopeful guy. He has a very sharp eye for what's wrong and how it got to be the way it is. Nevertheless, he does have hope that um that that native americans and really as we get to in the interview all americans can have food sovereignty and basically have power over their own food where it comes from and what they eat and and get the food that's best for them so man it was just so such a I mean, I don't use this. I, this is a trite phrase, and I, you'll rarely hear me use it. I bet I've never said it on this podcast. It was a blessing to talk to Sanjay, and uh, I'm really glad to be able to bring this interview to people. So, Brandon, I know you're going to love it listening to it. I know that a bunch of our listeners are. I appreciate all the support everybody gives us. Uh, thanks again to Grain Bell Premium. Thanks to all of you who listen. Remember, 
subscribe, rate, review, and share the Reverend Hunter podcast. And now here's my interview with Sanjay Rawal, the filmmaker and brains and director behind the movie Gather, which you can see in the month of November on Netflix. The wild is calling. Answer your thirst for adventure with Grain Belt Premium Beer. Bring the Grain Belt to the outdoors with their limited edition premium hunting season pack. It's available anywhere you can find premium 12-pack cans of Grain Belt. Hey, Sanjay, thank you so much for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. I love your film. Thank you. I I really appreciate you watching it and uh, having me on for this chat. And I just heard it's going to Netflix on November 1st. Is that, did I get that right? That's correct. At the start of uh, America's Native American Heritage Month, we're launching on Netflix. That's got to be super exciting. Yeah, it'll reach a lot more eyeballs and it'll be a time of year where people, you know, hear the, a, 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 a pretty powerful, but, you know, the slightly problematic founding myth mm. of America. Most people, know that it's not entirely true. Some people know it's not even partially true, but, you know, because the holiday is both about food, which gathers us together, and about a a heritage that we don't all share, there's Mm -hmm. always interesting conversations. And we hope the gather will spark a lot of interesting family conversations about what our history says about us and, um, you know, what role we have to play in this world that you know or this country that's not very old yeah i i had so many touch points for myself personally um in your film some of which i hope we can get to uh i lived for a time on the pine ridge reservation in south dakota so was and in fact um i got government commodity food when i was on the reservation which i probably shouldn't have gotten but it's so interesting, and I'd love to hear your experience of this, but when I lived out there, even though I'm a white washichu is what Lakota call white people, um, which is an interesting story, at least the story they told me was this washichu word, it means fat stealer, and there was an, a legend that there was a white man lost on the plains, and he came into an Indian camp, and all the Indians who had just had a big buffalo hunt were... Um, so full of food that they were just all sleeping. And this white guy was so stupid that he stole all the fat because he didn't know the difference between the fat and the meat. So this is the Lakota word, and this is what they called me. But I think they wanted me to have the full experience of the reservation life. And this is why they told me to line up in the government commod truck and and go in and get my lard and my dried meat and it's some crappy food. I wonder if you had a similar experience of being welcomed into these communities and if you can relate some of that. I, I, I do, but I, I'll, I'll set a little bit of historical context with, with some modern terms that'll help really frame what the, this, this whole topic is about. I mean, we, we know Mark Zuckerberg, we know Jeff Bezos, you know, we know folks that go out to wealthy people wealthy corporations, wealthy families to try to raise money for a big idea. Mm-hmm. They don't have the money to put in themselves, but they know that if they do well, they'll become fantastically rich. So there was an Italian guy named Christopher Columbus who had this idea, like Facebook, like Instagram, that he could do something revolutionary. He could sail to the far east by heading west. I mean, he would need a huge armada to do that because they would have a long, long journey and he went to the richest people in Europe, all of whom were members of various royal families, and finally got the royal family of Spain to cough up the investment. And of course, he kind of crash landed in the Caribbean in Hispaniola. But in those days, pre-industrial revolution, all of the wealth was was you know they was either on top of the soil or if you got lucky below the soil. There was no industrial revolution, right? So right. you know they couldn't find gold and subsequent expeditions to what you know is now the United States found the opposite. They found an incredible, incredible patchwork of organic, regenerative, 
very sustainably farmed land where they could see the wealth of this country was not necessarily in prospecting for gold or silver, but in harnessing the wealth in the topsoil. And so in this case, the, the English really took over a lot of native farms, turned them into massive, massive plantations to sell cotton and tobacco back to Europe. So in a sense, natives as human beings were not valued. It was their land that was valued. Right. Um, in the beginning, it, there was a lot of military action. Uh, after the mid-1800s, a lot of that become, became socially unacceptable. But the end result is... Most native tribes have been pushed as far away from urban centers as possible, whether they were re relocated all the way from the East Coast to the Midwest right. or had their territories drastically reduced, like the Lakota on Pine Ridge or the Cheyenne River Reservation, etc. They were pushed quite far away, therefore, from supply chains. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were they were pushed away from cities, they, you know, and they were stripped of culture and punished for hunting in traditional ways, or they were moved away from traditional hunting grounds and left to rely on, on an American food system that's never really served them. Well, and uh, I mean, the, the reservation on which I lived is, is a prime example, not farmable land. So moved, the Lakota, of course, uh, the Lakota had been farmers in the central plains and had been moved west as Europeans moved west and they became these incredible horsemen and warriors and hunters, but then uh, were moved. Yeah, uh, I'm sure in the reservation you were on, but on the reservation I was on, it's not farmable land. And in terms of hunting practices, they'd built an entire culture for tens, if not nearly 100,000 years, as, as now modern archaeology is revealing, around one particular species mm -hmm. around a species that was nomadic and that buffalo obviously the the, yeah. the american bison and when those bison were killed really led by you know military strategy um which which basically dictated that if you kill one buffalo you'd actually end up impacting or killing in their in their words um two lakota warriors because mm -hmm. of the, the asymmetric warfare practice of, of destroying food supplies but if you force people on reservations who were hunters and gatherers, if you know, for the most part, and who followed a particular animal, you've basically separated them from their hunting ground. Yeah. And at the same time, if you've separated those animals from their traditional nomadic patterns, you know, you can clearly see that the Lakota are are food insecure and are suffering from a whole host of diseases related to reliance on the worst of the worst American food. Like you said, the commodities, yes. the sugar, yeah. starch, starch, oil, fat. And uh, I, I mean, I, I <laughs> there, there's, again, there's so many touch points for me, but like uh, one of the kids says in the film, I think I'll probably die of some health-related problem. And, you know, basically all we have is gas station food. And I can attest to that, that I... The town I lived in had one little grocery store. It wasn't even a grocery store, a convenience store, gas station. And the woman who ran it did everything she can to have some apples and oranges on the counter by the checkout stand. But that was it, man. The rest was processed food. Again, th th this goes back to the legacy of the early economy in the U.S., the economy that drove it for 100 years. It was not necessarily coincidental that the Civil War happened around the same time as the Industrial Revolution, but prior to the Industrial Revolution, the entirety of the economy, with the exception of some industries like whaling, um, it required labor and land. And the entire economics were built off of free land and free enslaved labor. Mm -hmm. Natives are only valuable in their separation from their land. I mean, there's, there's a lot of discussion now about the legacy of slavery on African-American bodies and the legacy of those types of, you know, the policing of their bodies. But natives aren't punished necessarily by urban law enforcement. They're punished by fish and game. Uh, fish and game played outsized role in incarcerating Native American people. And for Native Americans, the, the trajectory has always been clear. If they can be separated from their land, if they can be separated from their practices, 
then their land becomes less valuable to them. And the curious thing about moving them from pretty arable farmland to terrible farmland in the Midwest was that rocky farmland, for the most part, you know, held a lot of petroleum reserves mm-hmm. and other types of minerals. So their land, which was considered not valuable by the, 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 the economy here, is now seen as very valuable. And so kids like Sammy Jensaw, a young fisherman in our movie, see that the way they're going to continue to be attacked by the economy is by poverty. Hmm. And poverty breeds a whole host of diseases based on poor access to food or getting access to poor food. Did you, was this, um, was the topic of indigenous persons in North America and their food sources something that you already had interest in, or did you kind of fall into it? What was your journey into this film? So as you know, from living in, in, in Lakota territory, it's pretty much impossible for an outsider to gain any sort of trust with the native communities, because that, that trust has... the that that trust has been you know used and abused for 400 years and although it might be my first trip to a place it's not the first time those folks have seen outsiders and for the most part outsiders are clueless or they have to spend decades really earning that trust the whole project of of this film gather was really initiated by a nonprofit out of Longmont Colorado called the First Nations Development Institute and i worked hand in hand with them and native producers and and native advisors this wasn't a topic that was really, you know, and necessarily one that I'd been thinking about for years. Although my first film, Food Chains, with Eva Longoria, Eric Schlosser, and Forrest Whitaker, was about a small group of tomato pickers in southern Florida that had battled for wages and human rights, not by pressuring farmers, but by understanding that the power lay at the very top of the supply chain with the Walmarts, the McDonald's the companies buying the produce uh, that they were picking. So I worked in the food system and my dad was a farmer. My dad was an agriculture, tomato, tomato breeder, um, still is in, in California. So I'd kind of always grown up around the industrial side of food or in the case of, 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 of your podcast, in the self-reliant aspect of food mm-hmm. and clearly mm-hmm. see, having lived in major cities most of my life too, that the majority of people really have no clue where their food comes from. Yeah, I mean that's that is absolutely true and I in fact I was duck hunting this morning and driving home uh um with a buddy and he was asking uh, he's a younger guy and he was asking me about um getting married and he said what should I look for in a wife and I said you want to definitely find a, a spouse who will eat wild game because I know people like me who hunt a lot and whose spouses don't eat wild game. And it's, um, it's funny that people would rather have industrial raised, you know, it's, it be, be, people become so socialized to it and acclimated to it and their tastes have shifted so much. Um, there's this moment in the film when Nef- toward the end of the film, Nephi Craig opens his cafe which must have been an awesome day for you to be there uh, filming that and being a part of that. But I know he's serving food to people, even in his own Apache tribe, who aren't familiar with that kind of cooking. And he's almost like it's it's going to be this process of reintroduction of new flavors and new food preparations uh, to his people. So what what was your experience of that day? Well, you know, again, a, l- a little bit of context, you know, after it kind of became socially unpalatable to outright murder natives, the there was a concerted campaign to separate them from their culture. And so there was this push from the late 1800s. It lasted through the 1970s of forcibly kidnapping, literally, I'm not being hyperbolic, but yeah. forcibly kidnapping native kids and putting them into boarding schools. And so you have a lot of, of families whose, whose grandparents don't speak their language because they were beaten for speaking their language at, at boarding schools and who never grew up in their culture and have basically lost the food traditions. 
at the same time, it's it's something that I I I took to heart and you know went to my own parents and I asked them if they could remember what was in the kitchen of their grandparents when they were growing up. They're from India, from villages in India, and the type of food that they were eating in those villages is completely different than my concept of what East Indian food is. So in any case, like Nephi's had to kind of reconstruct an idea of Apache foods and Apache ingredients through work that people had done asking elders those questions. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. there's generations of people living on the reservation that never had those foods, never had those tastes, but are coming to this particular movement because they understand that there was a time when their people were free and their people were free from the subjugation of a colonial economy and the addictions and poverty and other traumas that come from that. And that by reconnecting with the food that their ancestors ate, they could reconnect with the cultural and spiritual practices of those ancestors. I mean, it's the heart of what you do, I'm sure. And that's the realization that if you rely on nature for your food, you're inherently relying on the divine. And there are spiritual feelings of gratitude, of love, Mm -hmm. really of oneness and feeling that you're not alone in this universe, that you are part actually of a full active part of a very beautiful part of creation. And when people are reintroduced to that through the indigenous lens, you know, the sense of well-being increases exponentially. And that's the heart of Nephi's restaurant. Yeah, I it was it, it's it was incredible to watch that journey of of him transforming this gas station into a you know a high end uh, kind of cafe, um, and yet you that's juxtaposed with Twyla um, hunting rats. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you. I'll <laughs> I would give you love a to hear about that. So, like you know, in the 1500s, when the Spanish first kind of pushed up into Arizona, they saw the Apache. Eating these, eating these little creatures at one, at one particular time of year, December, January, February, when they were a vital way to ingest medicines, particularly plant lectins that were indigestible for human beings. But these little creatures called glosjo, you know, were active in that foraging system. And so the Apache would capture them and eat them as protein. They're completely clean because they're living under cacti and eating primarily mesquite seeds and other other plants. But the Spanish were coming from big cities and you know they're on the verge of what was going to become the black plague mm-hmm. and they saw the apaches essentially eating pack rats. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of creating a stigma, creating a sense that the apaches were inferior human beings for eating something that the Spanish would not have eaten in their own home biome. But Twyla goes out on hunts for these little things that are literally, they're, they're, you know, they're in the rodent family and they run like 20 miles an hour. And so you've got a bunch of old ladies chasing them. With sticks. Um, with sticks. <laughs> but this yeah. is the thing. Like they make their sticks out of a particular kind of wood hmm. and they pin these fast moving rodents by putting pressure between the stick and the rodent's head. Like they don't impale the body. I mean, that would destroy the the palatability of of the meat. So the agility and the effort and the skill needed to actually capture these is, is pretty significant. And so she takes kids out to learn these techniques and kids love it. Like she takes out the, she took out the the junior varsity girls basketball team. Hmm. And so you've got five or six people that are already used to working in a team. And, you know, each rat has its own series of nests. So once you chase it out of one, you know it's going to be going to another learned uh, hiding place. You don't know where that is. And so it's a constant game of keeping the, the pack rat out of its little hiding places. And at the same time, being quick and agile enough so that when it runs by you, you poke it right in the head and that's it. And then you can break its neck and chuck it in a bucket. Um, so in the movie, you saw that she took a young woman, a young girl who was from a battered home, um, a seven-year-old out for her first pack rat hunt. And the energy that that brought that child and the enthusiasm when the child was a part of that hunt 
um, and then ate the fruits of her hunt, you know, it was really remarkable to watch. Look, I, as a hunter, I was like, how in God's name is she hunting rats with a stick? Like the accuracy with which she must use that stick to hit it in the head. And then she yells at the girl to run over, you know, help her. And I think that's like the one part of the film where I don't know if you were, you had a camera operator or you were operating the camera or whatever, but the camera's like uh, running after her as she's chasing these rats. It was kind of a fun little chase scene in the, in the film. I mean, it, it, it's, it's so mind blowing too, because you know, the, in, as you know, especially from studying like indigenous cultures, like the San Bushman of the Kalahari, who, by the way, I made a, a, a an entire film with, a running film with them, and mm. just spent time out there with these traditional running cultures. And you see that their sense of stewardship and their ability to manage populations of animals that we think of as wild or non-domesticated is is exquisite. And that was very, very similar to the relationship that Native Americans had with herds. So in the winter, the main food sources of the Apache are, you know, either, you know, with with child or they're preparing for hibernation. And so alternate food sources, protein sources, you know, are relied upon so that you can keep the populations of other animals strong and healthy. And the way they cook these things, like you know, it it does not sound like 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 high end cooking, but there's a very specific technique. They just, you know, there's two ways, but the one way that we saw was just throwing the the, the pack rats into boiling water. You know, you'd never be able to skin the thing and and keep right. any of its meat, and so they chuck it into super hot water after it's dead. All the the fur floats to the surface, and the guts congeal. And so when they crack it open with the knife, they can peel out the entire congealed GI tract, the little organs, and you basically just have fresh meat that you can just cut up. I mean, the stuff doesn't taste like anything, but Twyla kind of transformed it into um, seasoned corn tamales. Ah, Well, it's funny because Nephi asks her, um, how long did you cook these? And she's like, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes. And other, other guys, they're like, I think it was more like 30. Like she's not, you know, she's not cooking by a timer. She's, she's cooking by instinct. I'd I'd like to think it's like when you throw, um, you know, gnocchi into a pot, Yeah. you know, they're done when they float to the surface. Yeah. (laughs) That's probably the same thing here. Same thing with the pack rats. It's done. Um, one aspect of the film that I think a lot of people will really love and resonate with and is is the younger people you follow. And so I, I'd love to talk about them and their stories. Um, first of all, you've already mentioned Sam. Sammy, you called him? Yeah. Samuel, Sam Sammy. What a great personality and what a young leader already in his group you just see uh and the way you filmed it you know the other boys looking up to him listening to what he has to say learning from him about uh how to fish um how did how did you find him and and what's he all about sammy comes from the Yurok reservation which is on the border of california and oregon it's pretty much as far away from a major city as as i think you could probably get in america mm-hmm. You know, it's seven hours away by car from San Francisco, a good six from Portland. And so they're at the very end of trucking lines. There's no railways. So they're reliant on trucking lines to bring them food. And, you know, when you don't have money to buy organic, you know, sustainable stuff at Whole Foods, it's going to be junk. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the, the the bottom of the barrel stuff that's being sold at super high prices. So the things that you can afford are the things that are cheap, like hot dogs. And there's no no companies are going to invest in like planting a big Safeway or a big like Walmart. So it's the gas stations that are going to serve as like you saw on the Lakota Reservation as multiple points of uh, multiple touch points for 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 life. And so Sammy realized that. You know, fish and game was taking away hunting licenses from native kids and gun licenses was the, was the penalty. And so kids, you know, 18, 19 would never be able to like hunt again, which 
makes him rely on the gas stations even more. He was seeing that happening. He was seeing a lot of kids going to jail for you know fish and game violations, and realized that you know that I'm not, I'm not using this word lightly. The genocide's taken a different form, hmm. and pretty soon there are going to be no native youth left on his reservation, and therefore the land won't be used, and the U.S. government will come and take it like they've always known the government wanted to do. And this is the, this is the sentiment all over Indian country. And again, it's not hyperbole. Yeah. Um, so Sammy started a youth group called the Ancestral Guard, where they literally go out and they teach kids how to hunt and how to fish and how to live off the land and how to provide for those who can't anymore, like elders. Um, and so it's it's kind of like taking severely at-risk kids um, to and putting them through this kind of cultural identity you know, workshop. So even if they don't make it to college or get like a good nine to five job, they know that their connection to themselves is proportional to their ability to live on their land. Hmm. Uh, and I, 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 one of the things I appreciated so much about that was that it was, um, it was fishing. Like, I guess the different, if you look at, at your film through the lens of the different indigenous foods you've got the buffalo you've got um the apache tribe basically in the desert whether it's uh it's foraging and it's these pack rats and then you've got the Yurok tribe fishing it's all about fishing there was no talk of hunting or buffalo uh so you definitely must have seen i i guess what coming away from making this film I think we have a tendency to group all Native Americans together, like they're all homogeneous, right? And you must have seen some real differences between the tribes y- you interacted with. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, the, all of us come from somewhere, right? And there are very, very few populations of people that were forced to be, you know, nomadic. So our ancestors. 300, 400 at the most, 500 years ago, were living in the same places for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And way back when, there was never any kind of idea that like, if, if I wanted to, maybe I could move to some major city. Like Now people can go like, oh, there's jobs in Austin. I'm going to move to, jo- move to Austin. Oh, there's jobs in Nashville. I'm going to move to Nashville. But back then, it's like your land was your home and the home for people of every successive generation in your family. And so you had, you had a long-term outlook. You weren't going to like pollute the river. You, were, you weren't going to like mess up the farmland and you were going to teach people, you know, how these spiritual values of stewarding the land, you know, would ensure the survival of your people. And so the Americas were, in, in some degree still are, they were such an abundant place for food. So natives didn't have to really travel that far for food, and they could set up villages and move those villages to other food sources as the season shifted. So you, you know, in that 10, 15, 20, 50,000 years of no contact with Europe, natives basically created a number of different subcultures. We now call them tribes, full, fully different languages, full different spiritual and cultural connections to their land and they were experts in the place that they lived. And so if the animals there were were beavers and, and muskrats and and geese, well, they got to really know those animals. And if they could if they could harvest meat, they knew how to harvest that meat and and make it really, really good. If you were in the plains and the major source of food traveled a thousand miles every year, well, you figured out how to follow that. And for the case of, of Sammy Jensaw, they live off one of the most abundant rivers, or what formerly was one of the most abundant rivers in the world until it was dammed um, in the 1900s. And so they're fighting a fight, not just to, to learn, relearn how to live off that river, but how to bring that river back to health. And that's the battle for food. It's like, it's yeah. very much political. Yeah, yeah. Um, another young person you profile in the film is Elsie, who's a member of the Cheyenne River um, Sioux, Lakota Sioux Nation. Um, very different 
perspective from her. I mean, you you track her in the in this very. I mean, first of all, she's out looking at her family's buffalo herd and talking very openly and candidly about her connection to the land. Um, and but she's at a science fair is kind of our main interaction with her, which is a very, uh, I don't know, would you call it a very kind of European type thing? She's at a high school science fair um, competing to win, which she does win. Um, so I, why did you make that choice of showing her in that perspective? Well, we, we, we all suffer from a lot of ignorance in the food system, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not knocking you know, government as a whole, but like the FDA controls the meat supply. You couldn't just bring your duck if you've got a, if you've got if you've got young kids. You couldn't just bring the duck that you 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 harvested to your kid's school today and like serve it up. Right. I tried. Even if you- I tried to do that once, Sanjay, and it's true. I was not allowed to do it. And I'll tell you another quick uh, anecdote that happened during COVID here in Minnesota, where there was an overabundance of hogs ready for slaughter, and there was obviously a. a you know, a lot of the processing and slaughtering plants were shut down because of COVID outbreaks. So on several like Facebook groups I follow, you could go to a farmer and you could buy a hog, but you could not, because of FDA regulations, you could not uh, kill, dispatch that hog on his property. So he would load it onto a trailer for you. You'd have to drive it out off his farm onto the county road where then you could dispatch the hog and then you'd have to go find another place to, but he, these farmers were like, I've got all these hogs, but the government won't even let me butcher a hog on my own farm. It, it's, it's, there's an insane set of policies and, you know, marginalized communities, whatever race or color they might be that rely on stuff they raise you know, maybe not because they want to, because it's all super hard work, but because it's just way cheaper than having to go buy 500 pounds of meat every year for your family. Um, those are the populations that suffer. And so Indian country falls in that rubric. And so Elsie is has grown up around Buffalo. Her dad, Fred, is a Buffalo farmer, um, has a huge herd, and she knows the health benefits and she knows the medicinal benefits. She knows not only that from a scientific standpoint, but the cultural touch points. But she also sees that the FDA policy is, is as anti-Buffalo as you possibly could be. Hmm. And so she figured that, you know, if in order to get the food back on the supply chain that comes to her res, maybe she needs to start putting together a battery of science. Because you can't harvest a thousand pounds of meat of Buffalo on your tribal land and take it to a school that has no school lunch programs for the same reasons you touched on. I mean, I know cattle farmers on native land that can't sell their cattle to the school system. It's like they've got a trend. There's no slaughterhouse facilities, you know, for those cattle in the middle of nowhere. And there aren't slaughterhouse facilities for buffalo in general. So, you know, in the case of the cattle, they've got to ship it 500 miles away to a facility and then it becomes prohibitive for that school district to buy that meat. Hmm. So Elsie figured, hey, if I can change the policy, I'll, I'll have a direct impact on my people as long as that might take. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you another question about Elsie. And and I've, I, I'm no expert on film, but I've been around enough film and TV to know that in a 75-minute film, every choice you make, everything that's I- included – is um, uh, on purpose, is purposeful. There's no throwaway lines or minutes. There's a moment where there's a bunch of Native kids standing listening to Elsie's presentation at the science fair. And uh, the teacher, who's kind of looks like this, uh, he's like right out of Central Casting, science teacher with the loosened tie, you know, kind of bedraggled looking, but also excited about being there, says something to these boys like, well, do you know she's native? And they say, no, what? You know, they don't know she's native. And she says, right before you cut to another scene or whatever, she says, that's what I wrote my college application on, which I took to mean that she wrote her college application 
on the fact that she doesn't look particularly native. And I just wonder, even though I know your film's not about that, really, it's not really about identity, but you know, you've already said um, that you're an, an Indian American. I, I'm a European American. She doesn't necessarily look like a Native American, but she is. That's how she identifies. I wonder why you had that line in there, what it meant to you, if it, if it had any significance. Well, that, that's, that's a great question. You know, we, we made this film exclusively for Indian country. I mean, it's kind of a shock that, that anybody outside Indian country likes the film. It's a super shock that it's, it's going to be on, on a platform like Netflix. And so in Indian country, as an outsider, you know, I've, I've seen that there's a, a, um, a, a pretty deep battle around what it means to be Native. You know, the government, U.S. government and Canadian government instituted these blood quantum requirements. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's a smart way to determine if someone's Native. They've got Native blood. But in essence, that has served to disenroll people. Because, you know, it's like if, you, if your mom married, if your mom, mom was Native and married a white guy, you know, maybe you wouldn't be accepted into the tribe, even though you might speak the language and you might know all the traditions. And it's just, it was just a way for the government to separate natives to basically reduce their official tribal populations. And so there's been a lot of, you know, since, you know, non-natives came to North America, there's been a lot of intermingling and there's and love is love. And sometimes maybe love wasn't love, but that said, you can't really tell someone's native by the way they look. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their nativeness really comes from their connection to their land. Mm-hmm. They, do they live on the res or do they come back to the res? Are they really valuing their people's cultural ceremonies? Are they going to those ceremonies? Are they trying to participate to the best of their ability? And so I think that's what Elsie's grappling with because her dad is a you know in a sense in a weird role as a Lakota man because he looks totally white yeah. and he's got blue eyes but like he grew up with his grandparents who lived on the res entirely impoverished Lakota childhood and brought his kids up with those Lakota values and so even though they don't quote look like natives they don't know any other reality and they do know the trauma of growing up on a res yeah yeah well I thought that was uh, I've figured you put that in there, even though it wasn't, like I say, a topic of the film. It was a line you could have easily not included, and you did include. And uh, as you say at the end of the film, and it's on your website, she's at Stanford now. So uh, I'm guessing she's, you know, going to be, well, she's going to be doing very powerful things. She's she's somebody who can really do something great for Indian country in her you career. Know, it, it was a big shock for her, honestly, you know, moving from a place in where in her words she could see all four directions yeah to a place where she couldn't and as many people like who grew up in cities like i did you go to a college campus you go oh my god the trees are beautiful it's, it's such an abundance of nature but it's not nature yeah. it's a just a glorified garden <laughs> and in, in her in her you know estimation like there were there were no animals like she didn't just grow up around grasses and trees. She grew up around big animals. And the absence of that kind of fauna, you know, in this kind of artificial abundance of flora really, really hit her hard. And Mm. she was homesick. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. I, I went to a college that was founded supposedly to educate Indians, but that was, of course, a ruse used to raise money for Dartmouth College in Europe. Um, and that Dartmouth College has tried to, since you know, more recently, make amends by really reaching out to Native kids and 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 offering them admission, but have but a lot of kids, and it's been well documented at the college, have really struggled. To move to Hanover, New Hampshire, <laughs> from Indian country—that's uh, that's a, a, a quite a leap. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to take this in a in a dark way, in a dark turn, but because this is public knowledge, Elsie's younger brother, you know, yeah, enrolled at, at Dartmouth for his freshman year, and before he was to travel home in November for Thanksgiving, he took his own life. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. So it's like, it's, you're right. It's, it's, it's heavy. 
Yeah. You know, Native kids do not really do well necessarily in environments where people still think they don't exist. Yeah. And people are still shocked that there are Natives anywhere. Well, Sanjay, my last question for you is this. Um, in all reality, do you think food sovereignty is possible for Native Americans in, you know, across North America? It seems like oh, such a steep hill to climb. And you're, and what one thing I love about your film, I will say, is it is a hopeful vision. Um, you deal with the trauma of the past. I will say that some of the archival footage you have on there is really disturbing, and it's all we need to continually be reminded of that. Uh, but it's a hopeful film. Ultimately, I wonder how much hope you have that food sovereignty is really possible. Well, I, I love the question. I think there's two parts. Is that Number one, when you've got a population, even though it's been decimated culturally, intellectually, um, when you've got a population that has been in a place that you've called home for a few decades or a few hundred years, but they've called home for thousands and ten thousands of years, they probably have some knowledge. And you see the ramifications or manifestations of that, for example, in California, where there have been unmitigated wildfires. And native tribes have said, we never had those kinds of uncontrolled wildfires because we managed the forests. The forests were not wild. Mm -hmm. They were things that we interacted with. But number two, when it comes to food sovereignty, this whole country is screwed if each community, native or non-native, doesn't develop a sense of food sovereignty. Mm. I mean, we saw and we're continuing to see in COVID that this country is based on an intricate, very wobbly supply chain. If one little problem occurs in a field in Mexico, you might not have food for weeks in parts of New York City. At the same time, all of this country is so was so abundant with food resources. You know, there's no reason why we shouldn't be finding ways to rely on the land and the rivers and the oceans, you know, within a stone's throw of wherever we live. I mean, it's going to be hard because that's going to require valuing those places. That's going to require educating everybody about how their food choices make an impact on their immediate environment. But if we don't develop that same sense of, of cultural and spiritual connection to the land that we live on and therefore the food that comes from it, we're going to have a very, very difficult time keeping this country what it is in the next couple of hundred years. Mm. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for the film and for the conversation. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled for you and thrilled for Indian country, quite honestly, that, that it's going to be on Netflix because I think, it, you, you know, it will open up a part of our country to a ton of people who never even think about it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for conversations like this. I'm grateful for the work that you do. And yeah. I guess we all should just keep on keeping on in our own small ways. You got it. Thanks, man. Thank you. 